We are in week four, the concluding week of this series that we've entitled Be Thankful. And as I've said every week, I invite you to join us because this has been specifically chosen just for me. And uh, we, <laughs> I have to almost laugh. Uh, and I, I did. I just went to the staff and just started cracking up because here I am preaching on Be Enthusiastic and you can imagine if you're a preacher and you're going to preach on be enthusiastic, what kind of week you have before you're going to preach on be enthusiastic. Uh, yesterday I mentioned that um, there's a song inside of me. I was just feeling enthusiastic and it was all great until about 11. Um, and then it all fell apart. And I think it needed to fall apart just so that I could bring uh, a message with more sensitivity. Um, I mean, you often see me Here's just a quick snapshot. On Thanksgiving, I don't know what you did, but after we were really full and enjoyed the get-together with the family, and we had six grandkids with us, so we watched the Winnie the Pooh Thanksgiving special together. And I don't know if you've ever seen that before, but you, you know the characters well enough to know that uh, there's Tigger. That's, he's really appropriate on a be enthusiastic kind of message. Then there's Eeyore. And uh, you typically see me on a... Tigger moment on the platform because, you know, 20 to 30 hours of preparation in a very prepared setting, I'm able to bring forth enthusiasm most of the time. And um, that's just part of what you see. But I am just like you. I have a lot more unprepared moments than prepared moments. And I wish I could be more like Tigger in all of my unprepared moments. And what we're talking about is enthusiasm. And so I think it's probably better that I come from a place where it's like, oh, crud, I got to speak on enthusiasm. <laughs> when I'm feeling like this, you know, it's a really hard thing to go through. Um, but maybe that's even better because we're going to talk about enthusiasm a little bit different than maybe you think of the word. We're going to talk about it from the standpoint of a supernatural thing as opposed to a mood thing or an attitude thing or a choice thing. And I want to give you the theological basis for this thing being supernatural. And so I come with mixed feelings about all of this because I wish I could be connected in this supernatural way very powerfully. So let's just jump right into it. I'm going to start with a lot of questions for you. Do we control our enthusiasm or does our enthusiasm control us? Are there external influences that have an impact on how we feel and react? I just shared with you, oh, absolutely. <laughs> Those external things affect our feelings and reactions, and the outward thing is what we call enthusiasm, is it not? Yet, here's the next question. Are there internal influences that impact how we feel and react? Oh, absolutely. And is it possible to choose to be enthusiastic even in difficult environment. So having just kind of laid out those questions, we're going to talk about two different kinds of enthusiasm. There's probably a, a number of different ways of looking at this, but here are two types of enthusiasm. Number one, there is enthusiasm elevated by environment, where we have all those props and things that are happening in our life that it's just kind of, ooh, we become more enthusiastic because the environment kind of carries us. Then number two, then there's enthusiasm that elevates the environment. So everything around us is perhaps not very enthusiastic, perhaps even pulling us down, and yet it's possible with a particular kind of enthusiasm to lift the environment around us. 
Howard Hendricks was a fabulous teacher. I love to read his stuff and hear about his stuff. Here was a quote from him when he addressed a seminary graduation. So seminary students are Bible students who are graduating and heading off into ministry. Here's what Howard Hendricks said to them. God is not calling you to be flattered, but to be faithful. Not to be a chameleon, but a catalyst. Not to be a thermometer, but a thermostat. Thermometers merely register temperature. Thermostats determine it. So when we're talking about be enthusiastic in this supernatural kind of way, we're talking about the ability when you have no props around you and all those environmental things that are making you feel good, when that's not there, that you connect in a supernatural way and able to actually elevate the temperature of the environment around you. Now, that's a high challenge. I'm not able to be a tigger all the time. And I don't even know if I want to go to the place where I'm trying to buy am I Eeyore mostly or Tigger mostly, you know? It's like, which are you? I mean, that's not really the point of today so much as to encourage us to tap into something deeper, stronger than we've ever tapped into before to experience something supernatural in that exchange. So our focus today is enthusiasm can change your environment. Enthusiasm can change your environment. So why is this really, really important? It's really important because there is an enthusiasm that is supernatural. Now, if you haven't believed that yet, and you don't think that's possible, that's my task to kind of encourage you to consider that possibility. We're going to jump right into Paul's words. They're familiar words to a lot of us when he wrote them in Philippians 4.4. The circumstance that Paul is in is what makes this so powerful. If he wasn't in this circumstance, we'd just go... You know, like, are you kidding me? There's no possible way. But because of his circumstances, we actually don't see these words as mockery. We see these words as, you mean this is possible? You mean we can really do this? Philippians 4.4, he is writing. Let me just say what he says and then say the, his circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. He's writing this about 62 A.D., and if you want to get a lot of context to see what's happening in his life, read the entire book of Acts, and you're going to move up to that context. And right where the Acts finishes and the story's not done yet is right where we're at when Paul writes this, 62 AD. He is chained. He doesn't know whether he'll live or die. He is imprisoned in Rome, and he doesn't know what the outcome will be. All the props that might prop him up to bring him... Natural encouragement, natural enthusiasm, there's no friends, there's no good food, there's no substances, there's no uh, outward props that would normally give you any encouragement. Nothing is there, and he's in chains, he doesn't know whether he's going to live or die, and he writes this. But part of me thinks he is at a place that is an advantage to tap into a source that's supernatural, and a lot of us are disadvantaged. Because we don't ever go there. Because we don't need to. We can kind of experience life from our friends and life from our things and life from our stuff and life. And we kind of, this is really living. This is really living. When all of that is gone and you're not sure whether you can live or die, Paul was at a place where he began to tap into something deeper, better, more powerful, and a song 
just wells up inside of him. And if you read the little letter of Philippians, and if you're not going to read the whole thing of Acts, just read Philippians. It just take you 30 minutes. He's just bubbling over with enthusiasm because he's been tapping into that source where he's rejoicing in the Lord. And he wants to encourage us to do that too, that you can do this always. I'll say it again, rejoice. So point number one on your outline, jot this down. Rejoice always. That sounds like mockery, especially if you're carrying suffering. If, if you're going through hard stuff, you think, no, wait, why are you telling me to do that? Don't put that on me. I can't rejoice right now. Ah, but we need to get a hold of what this means. Point number two, in the Lord rejoice is a choice. We need to understand what that means. We're not rejoicing in the suffering. We're rejoicing in the Lord. So back to the verse, Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Now, in the Lord. I'm going to say this in Greek because we're going to come back to this. The, Lord, the word Lord is kurios, or in this phrase, in, en, for in, en kurio, en kurio, Lord. Just tuck that away because we're going to get back to that, okay? Now, what Paul is telling us is this on the next slide. We are not told to rejoice in our pain, but to rejoice in the Lord. There is a difference. Now, what I'm going to do next is something I shouldn't do, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I shouldn't just load you up with this Bible college stuff and just load you up with all this verse after verse after verse after verse. But I think what I want to do is build the theology underneath this idea of enthusiasm and build it in the right way because we have an idea about theology that is not, an idea about enthusiasm that isn't accurate. And I discovered how inaccurate my idea about enthusiasm was this week. And I've taught on it before, okay? So here we go. The word enthusiasm. It comes from the Greek word enthusiazo. And enthusiazo, I took Greek. So I knew that enthusiazo has three parts to the word. En for in, theos for God, usia for essence. Theos, theology, the study of God. Okay, monotheism, one God. Okay, theos is God. Enthusiasm. I think this is the greatest word. It's like God in us. And we're in God. And the essence of God just bubbles over. And then this week I discovered the horrible, horrible truth that this word is not in the New Testament. It's like, oh crud, my whole message is just undermined. What am I going to do with this now? Because it's not there. It shows up one time. For, I just looked and looked and looked for this word in all the lexicons that I have and tried to figure. It's, it shows up in a apocryphal book one place, and you translate it out, and it doesn't mean enthusiasm the way I want it to mean enthusiasm, the right way. It's like, and it's not even the New Testament. But the good news is, because I researched it down, it's like, we're going to discover something even better than a wordplay, okay? We're going to discover this welling up of God's essence in us in a better way. And it's throughout the New Testament so much that I'm just going to just pick a few and it's going to be way too much for one message. But it gives you the idea and it's going to blow your mind. At least it does mind. Okay, so here we go. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Now, I added a, a lot of scriptures just even like last night. There's 91 scriptures with the phrase in Christ in just the NIV. We're going to take a look at just a few of the in Christ 
which is en Christo, okay, in Greek. Now, we're talking about en theos in God. That's not in the New Testament, that word. Neither is en theosomai, but en Christo is throughout the New Testament, and en curio is throughout the New Testament, and with Christ is even throughout even more. And I just picked a few to get a hold of this concept that's bigger than wordplay. It's a reality, okay? So, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Okay, you need to understand what that means. If you're hearing the gospel of salvation today, uh, this implies you're not just hearing with your ears, you're hearing and responding. If you hear and respond to this message, you are in Christ, and the gospel of salvation is at work in you to actually do something that blows your mind. And I want to talk about this. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. I want to start there because when we talk about being in Christ, there is a connection in a relationship between you and Christ. You're in him. There's a connection in that relationship that re- produces the reality of the Holy Spirit sealing you or being in you. We're going to talk this through as we go. Romans 8.1 says... Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. En Cristo, in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? But if you're there, there's no condemnation. Life's over. You face the judgment, and the judgment says, innocent, no condemnation. He's with Christ because he's in Christ. And it's true that you're in Christ. There's no condemnation to the power of sin or guilt or shame right now either if you're in Christ. This is good news, but what does it mean? It's like, how do I get a hold of that in my head? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in Christo, The new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. You're not getting enthusiastic yet, but you will. And it's pretty exciting stuff, this theology. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are God's handiwork created in Christo, in Christ Jesus, Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Here's the good news of this verse. God is a masterful creator, and he's creating a masterpiece, and that masterpiece is you. And you are his masterpiece that he's creating for a purpose, and he has that purpose in mind for you specifically. This is pretty cool for anybody who's in Christ. You're going to get excited here pretty soon. I I know it. And Colossians 1.27 says this, to them... God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. Even Paul calls it a mystery, which is Christ in you. Okay, we just switched from you in Christ to Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I try to hang on to this with my mind, and, I, and, and I'm trying to test the reality of the theology And if Christ is in me and there's this thing that wells up in me because I'm in Christ and Christ, let me just break it down this way. Christ, the Christos, is the christened one who is fully anointed with the Spirit of God and we see it taking place in the Gospels when he's baptized. The Holy Spirit descends upon him as a dove. There's a visual there and then there's a booming voice from heaven. This is my son 
in whom I'm well pleased. And he's anointed, fully anointed. The Spirit of God is on him. And now we can enter into that where we are in him, the hope of glory. So I'm going to give you some more verses where he's going to lay out this theology where our minds just go, it's like, ah, I'm not sure what to do with this. It's like, I'm not sure I can hang on to this. What does this mean? John 14, 16 through 17. And I will ask the Father, here's the context. This is the night he's betrayed. He's going to be crucified, okay, the next day. And he's just loading up his disciples with all this truth before, uh, while he has a chance, before all of this takes place. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate. Good thing he even tells us who this advocate is. Who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him. And the disciples go, who? The advocate. The Holy Spirit. You, we know him. You know him because he lives with you now. Where? Where? I just, I laid out the groundwork. So we kind of go, he's already completely in Jesus' physical body. The essence of God. The Holy Spirit is in him, fully anointed. You know the Holy Spirit because he lives with you now, right here. You see and hear all of the reality of the essence of God in me. And then here's what blows our mind. You see this now, and later, this Holy Spirit, this advocate, will be in you. Right? Okay, well, i got to come up with a different sound effect. I mean, that's a spring. We need some, you know, fuses going. The synapses are just blown. It's like, what? What are you talking about? Okay? And Jesus is laying it out for us. Now, I've started there in 14. We're going to back up in his life earlier when he's laying out these hints before he's just so bold and clear. Here's the hints that he laid out in chapter 7 of John. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. This is audaciously bold. He's not just an ordinary man here. And here's what he says. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now, he's alluding to an Old Testament prophecy about a temple that live, rivers, not livers, strike that, rivers of living water are, is flowing out of the temple in the middle of the desert, and it's making green the entire desert, but its source is the temple. Now, Jesus is saying, you remember that? There's a source, and I'm the source. You come to me, and if you do live not livers, rivers of living water will flow out of you and make green the life around you because my life is flowing from you. Remember that Jesus said he's the temple, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again. Then he, he says, now you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and Paul says this over and over again. That temple where the river flows out of, that's us because the Spirit of God has come into us and that life comes from us, out of us, and makes green the environment around us. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. John chapter 14, verse 20, he says, When I am raised to life again, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me. Okay? And I am in you. It's like, how do they even process this? 
And I want us to begin to accept it by faith and process it to test the reality of this theology in our experience. We can experience a supernatural source for an enthusiasm God in us in Christu, through Christ, in Christ, in the Lord. You are in me and I am in you. John 17, 13 says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so, they, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. John 17, the whole chapter is his long prayer to the Father on the night that he's going to be betrayed and he's going to the cross and the disciples are listening in and he's praying that the full measure of the joy that he already has inside of him, it's like, what joy is he talking about? He's talking about this union with the Father. We're going to see it here a little later in his prayer. In verse 20, same chapter, in the same prayer, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me. Huh, that's you and me. He prayed for us then. And good news in Hebrews and in Romans is that he is praying for us today. He is interceding on our behalf now. He was praying for us even then. All those who will ever believe in me through their message, I pray that they will all, each of us, be one. Just as you and I, he's praying to the Father, are one. It's like, ah, Jesus Christ, the unique Son of God, is one with the Father through the Holy Spirit. There's this union that's there that's full of joy and full of life. He says, now I'm giving it to you. Just as you are, you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I used to read this passage and only think of this passage as kind of teaching on the unity of us believers. No, no, that's secondary. Primary is that the oneness that Jesus had with the Father is something he gives to us in the oneness with the Holy Spirit that we can be in Christ and Christ in us, the Holy Spirit in us, a life force that changes everything around us. That's the oneness that we guard and protect and live in that he's describing here in his prayer. John 17, 26, he says, I have revealed you to them and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them. That's pretty cool, but watch this. And I will be in them. The synapses don't even know how to hang on to this, but experientially you can begin to taste it and test it and see that it is so when, let's just probe Paul's experience a moment. He's in chains. All the props are gone. He has nothing external to encourage and enthuse and fill And yet, in that setting, read Philippians, it's so thoroughly enthusiastic because he has nothing to do but rejoice in the Lord. And as he rejoices in the Lord, I picture him picturing the Lord himself standing before him, whom he has seen and met after his resurrection, picturing his hands with scars 
In his darkness, it's nothing but light. Here's the glorious one before me. He can reach his hand up to the scar-pierced hand and take the hand of the one who suffered, totally understands suffering, and he reaches down to Paul and he says, I know this is tough. We don't know which way this is going. You don't. I do. Take my hand. We're walking into the darkness for you, which is light for me. It's glory. Let's rejoice together. And then he talks about the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. Human synapses, it just flooded me. I don't even understand it, but here I am rejoicing in the Lord, and it's all good. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. No guilt can hold me down. I'm walking from here to glory. I may live. I'm walking in glory. I'm rejoicing in the Lord. Your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. Paul begins to describe this experience in words of theology. John 10.10, kind of a summary statement. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Boy, I have experienced that. Where in moments of hanging on to a lie, in moments of operating by a lie, now the distance between me and holiness is felt. And I'm feeling that. But Jesus came that we might have life, where that distance is obliterated, where he enters into our presence, so we enter into him, and his spirit fills us up, that they may have life and have it to the full. More summary statements on the screen. Enthusiasm is not a commodity that is elevated by our environment as much as it is a wellspring of the heart that finds its source in Christ. If you don't think so, read Philippians again. Paul gushes with enthusiasm while he is in chains in prison facing a possible execution. I started with a Howard Hendricks quote. I'm going to finish with a Howard Hendricks quote from the same message to the same audience of seminary students heading off into ministry. Here's what he said. Our problem today is that we're long on information and short on transformation. We're like poor photographs, overexposed and underdeveloped. Remember his audience. He's speaking to seminary students who studied their Greek, they studied their Hebrew, they studied the Bible, they devoted themselves to the study of the Bible. They were overexposed to the truths of the Bible. It's just filling them with knowledge, 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 knowledge. But he says, you are underdeveloped. You're trying to hang on with your brain, but you're not walking in transformation. You're trying to get a hold of the knowledge, but you're not living out what you know. I say... This quote doesn't fit us, but for a reason that you may not know. It's not that we are overexposed. We are not the seminary students that he was speaking to. Most churches in America are still sorely underexposed to the word of God. We are underexposed and underdeveloped, and we're still bad photographs who look little like Paul and even less like Jesus. But if we will expose ourselves to these truths and allow them to become truth for us and test the reality to see if it's so and choose to rejoice in the Lord, even though we're going through tough stuff, where we reach out our hand and hang on to the Savior when our intellect is not going to do it, our strength is not enough, our emotions are falling apart. Our props are gone. And maybe the diagnosis 
on every level says there's nothing left. And Jesus says, that's a lie. I am here for you. And I've already won this battle. Take my hand. Let's rejoice. Set outside the suffering. Let's rejoice. A flood of life I give you. The Spirit of God fill you. Let's walk together into glory. That's what Paul is writing when there's no exterior reason to write it. We need to hang on to it. Enthusiasm is the natural overflow of the developed intimacy of oneness. Paul was just hour after hour developing that intimacy in the Lord, and it just oozed out of him. Christ in me and me in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say it. Rejoice. Let's stand together. If you have a welling up in your heart to want this connection with God, I've placed into words a prayer that we're going to say together. If you want to grab a hold of this, there'll be ways to get a hold of this right here today or online later. Let's just pray this together right now. Ready? My dear Lord Jesus, you prayed that I might have the full measure of your joy within me. Yes, Lord, I agree with your prayer and ask for the full measure of your joy within me. You came to give me life to the full. I love you, worship you, and trust you. I give myself over to you to be one with you in all things. Thank you for praying for me even now. I ask this in your name and for your honor, yours truly.